hope everyone enjoyed our time yesterday with uh, Dave and Leisha Radford and the Gray Havens and our strings uh, playing with them last night. It was truly uh, amazing. Good job, everyone. Uh, before I introduce our speaker, just two, two quick uh, notes about the rest of the week. Um, we will have chapel today, uh, tomorrow and Friday morning. Tomorrow's chapel is a bonus credit, so if you come and swipe, you will get credit. So for everyone who's able to come, uh, please do and know that you will get credit there. I uh, also want to mention there's a lecture this afternoon at 4.30 p.m. Uh, with Andrew Fellows. Uh, it's going to be in Mills 180. So for those of you who are able to come, Mills 180 at 4.30 p.m. As we continue our uh, Francis Schaeffer Conference on True Spirituality, we are blessed to have Andrew Fellows with us uh, until Friday. Andrew has roots that reach deep into the vision, our vision, for the Schaeffer Conference. He served Labrie for 21 years as in, and is currently the director of Christian Heritage, which is essentially a Labrie campus ministry to the University of Cambridge in England. He has one wife, he has four children, and this is, while, while he's spoken extensively to colleges and universities uh, throughout UK and Europe, this is the first American college in which he's spoken, and we believe he has chosen wisely. So please, give a warm Scots welcome to Andrew Fellows. It's a delight to be with you here on the mountain. I've had a long association with this college, with alumni, and with professors, and now I'm connected, truly connected. So my life is complete. I've been at Covenant College. It's great to be here. So today or this morning, I want us to think a little bit about the age we live in. I call this the age of ego-paganism. That's a way we can denote the culture we belong to. And this is determined by the fact that the self today is at the center of everything. And this is expressed in lots of ways culturally, perhaps best in the selfie. That's the first one. This is the last one. This is pretty sobering. Now, it's not my intention this morning to uh, demonize the selfie and to tell you that its appearance is the last frontier before Western civilization completely collapses. That's not my case. But I, I do think the selfie serves as a potent metaphor of the ego-pagan era. Now, I'm not going to cover this this morning, but we can trace the origins of the ego-pagan era back to the, the 16th century, and it's offered lots of advantages to Western civilization science, technologies, new political orders, lots of things we can affirm coming out of this. But there are some serious liabilities that I think in the 21st century are beginning to unravel in terms of this collective ego-pagan era. And that's what I want to address briefly this morning. Now, one of the greatest challenges to the ego-pagan era is connected to the issue of the identity of the self. And the issue is this, with the self at the center of everything, that's how the ego-pagan framework works, the, the self is at the center of everything, the really big question is this, can the self determine the self in terms of an identity? 
Can the humanist project at the core of Western civilization for 400 years allow for the self to find a secure identity? This is our question. And the answer is no. If the self is at the center of reality, we are set up for a perpetual identity crisis. Now, the reason for this is found in something very interesting and perhaps shocking to some of you, and it's this. The self cannot know the self. It's an impossibility for the self to know the self. As you, the subject, look out on the world beyond you, you name it and you come to know it, and the one thing excluded from this knowledge is yourself. We know everything except the subject, who we are. And the great German philosopher Nietzsche really understood this. He said this in lots of different ways, but here's one of them. We are, un uh, we are unknown, we knowers to ourselves. And that's because we see what is beyond ourselves, and we don't actually accurately see within. None of you here have ever seen your face. And actually, your face is where yourself is incarnated into the visible world. None of you have seen your faces. The best you get of your face in terms of real sight is the tip of your nose. Point it up and you can see a little bit of your face. Otherwise, the only way you see yourself is in a mirror or in a photograph. And that's a distorted image of yourself. Hence, why whenever you see a group photograph that has you in it, who's the first person you look at? You look at yourself. I mean, you live with yourself 24 hours a day look in the mirror how many times a day, and the group photo, you look at yourself because you, the knower, are unknown to yourself. Now, there's a very good reason for this. The creator of our universe made human persons in his image. So the human self exists as the image of another. And that means the only way the self can be signified, which means gain a secure identity, is if we look beyond ourselves to the one that we image. And if we look at ourselves, all we're looking at is an image that's not secured without the God who made us, who made us in his image. So looking at ourselves never yields self-knowledge that's secure enough to really identify us. So we know, as believers, or we should, that the self is a fragile entity. We need the God we image to become secure. And we need to be eternally secured. Now my point is this. Because the self is at the center of everything, the ego-pagan era, we're in a double bind. The more we experience the fragility of ourselves in terms of identity, the harder we try to establish an identity. The harder we try to secure it. And that sets off the never-ending search for personal identity. Modernity, the world we live in, has lots of ironies. I love to explore them. One is this. Modern people have never invested more energy to their identities, to finding out who they are. This is the great quest, and yet we've never been more lost as to who we are. And this puts us in an endless cycle. Now, this identity crisis, which is one of the problems of the ego-pagan era, this has generated two things for the times we live in. And I think all of us are impacted by this. Firstly, we have become highly self-conscious. We're highly self-conscious beings, we moderns. 
we are very aware of ourselves. Now, this is connected to the problem I just laid out. The less secure we are in our identity, the more obsessed we become with ourselves. Now, there's an irony here. The irony, I I call it the irony of self-consciousness. Self-consciousness is part of the glory of being the imago Dei, the image of God. It's what distinguishes us from animals. We have self-consciousness. We have a sense of an I from which our experience begins. And we have a sense of our internal mental thought. And we can access our mental thought and think about it. That's a wonderful thing. However, self-consciousness easily tips over and becomes dangerous. And if it tips over and goes beyond its proper place, it begins to devour us and destroy us. And beyond certain limits, self-consciousness becomes cancerous because we keep trying to replicate the self internally. And I believe this is the modern contagion, excessive self-consciousness. We are hyper-aware of ourselves in a way that is, is, is deeply unhelpful and way beyond the limit that our Creator intended. How does this excessive self-consciousness work itself out? Well, reality for moderns is now much more in than it is out. We've become so keyed into what's going on inside of us that we're losing touch with the world outside of us. And that means that the subjective realm which in its right place is beautiful, but the subjective realm is beginning to eclipse the objective realm. So the ego-pagan era is one where the self has gone indoors. And we live in this space as if it were a world unto itself. And we have a self-awareness that's so strong it takes over. So subjectivity now rules. So locked inside of ourselves, we're highly alert to our inner worlds. And what's going on inside is more real, more important than what's going on outside. And we fail to realize that everything internal is meant for the outside world. It's precious, but for the other. Now, what we fail to appreciate here, that what's going on internally is only mental. And what is mental, what's consciousness, is much thinner than the real world. So you can think all you like about doing your essay for English composition class, but if you don't move into the real world and get writing and get printing off and do the final print, your work is very thin. And your your, your prof's not going to be that impressed. So when we get stuck inside of the world of the mental, we get trapped. And I think many of us begin then to compulsively over-intellectualize everything. I call this the paralysis of analysis, lost inside. Like a tumble dryer, our thoughts just keep going round and round and round. And we never find a level place from which action and commitment can occur because we're caught in the spin cycle of analysis. So excessive self-consciousness is the world where subjectivity rules everything. And we begin to lose touch with the objective world outside. Now, there are some heavy costs to living like that because the reality that exists beyond your consciousness has some hard edges. You can get bruised as you bump into them, but those hard edges are essential for doing life well. So in the real world, the girl you ask out can say no. 
That's the bump of the real world. Whereas inside your mental world, the internal world, you can engage in all kinds of fantasy where the bump doesn't occur and she always says yes. We need connection with the objective world for, the, for its limitations. Otherwise, we lose a sense of our finitude, the fact that we're limited. Now, I believe this hyper-self-consciousness of moderns is very damaging to the self because we were designed to be in harmony with the real world. And when this relationship gets damaged, we fall into internal chaos and disharmony. And that's because the universe indoors is not substantial. It's merely mental, which is so much thinner than the real. A number of great artists in the 20, 20th century, 21st century, have reflected on this modern tragedy. The Czech writer, Milan Kundura, described this in his epic book, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. We get carved out if we only live internally. We become ghost-like. And this is the irony of the humanist age. We set ourselves up as gods, but we have become ghosts. We've become thinned out. It's a terrible place to live from. The second problem is this. Firstly, we become highly self-conscious. Secondly, we become highly self-referential. The self is at the center of everything. We have an identity crisis. We become self-referential. We actually reorganize how we deal with reality. So every individual self is now the personal center of the universe and everything has to be referenced back to me. The self-referential was summarized perfectly for me a few months ago. I love t-shirts. T-shirts tell you about the world you live in. This one said, all roads lead to you. Brilliant. Love it. That's the self-referential universe. Now, this works in two ways. Firstly, in the self-referential universe, you use the world as a mirror. When you look into the mirror in the morning, what does it do? Well, you might say something I don't like very much. It bounces the self back to you. It's a self-reflector. That's what mirrors do. And that's the nature of self-referential experience. Everything is brought back to you. And that's what reality is for, to bend everything to you. That's its function. Now, this self-referential referential way of dealing with reality is connected to this problem of identity that I've already mentioned. Here we are, lost in self-consciousness, endlessly creating new identities, and we're becoming thinned out and ghost-like. So we compensate by using the world around us as a mirror to reflect something back to us, to make us feel real. You see, we use objective reality, what's beyond us, for the benefit of the self. So what's beyond us is not appreciated for having its, its own authentic existence, separate to ours. No, we use it as a mirror to bend back to us. And we treat people like this. We come into a room of people and their faces where their self is expressed, isn't something we appreciate. There's the other. We look into the face, and if they're frowning, some of you are frowning, I feel very dark about myself. And then some of you are smiling, I feel very good about myself. That's the world as a mirror. And we use everything like this. I'm fascinated by the zombie film craze of our day. And this is kind of like the zombie film of our times. The walking dead looking for other people to feed off. This is our dystopian world. Then secondly, we live in glass houses. 
This gives another layer of understanding how the self-referential works. We need a new metaphor, that of a glass house. Here we are in our excessive self-consciousness, and we feel alienated and we feel alone. The world of the self is a lonely place to occupy. It's only you there, alone in the universe of self. And the only way we can survive is to build a house of glass around us. Now, why is this house made of glass? Well, we have to keep inventing new identities for ourselves. And these new identities have to be curated. They have to be shared. So we keep curating and saying, this is who I am. And that's why we have walls of glass around us, so we can curate new identities. So we just keep posting, we just keep posting. And of course, social media is the perfect medium for curating the self. There's no better medium. So from within our glass houses, we engage in endless acts of self-curation. And this glass house becomes increasingly bizarre. Recently in this country, it got a lot of media attention, a, a white woman who curated herself as a black woman. Now that's the more extreme end, but we all do it to some degree. We curate and we say in our curation, this is who I am. I'm a happy person. You're the miserable person in the universe. You wake up depressed, onto Facebook. Everyone else is happy. Everyone else is having a perfect life except me. I'm a happy person. Look at all these photos with me having a good time. Now, of course, curation is only one side of the equation. My curation's only going to work if you perceive me. And that's why every curation requires a click. It's a great article if you... Uh, months back by one of my favorite English journalists, Charlie Brooker, and he's writing, he's a comedian journalist, he's writing on Twitter and Instagram, and he reflects that social media interactions are all about self-authentication. He says there's never been a single tweet or an Instagram that couldn't be replaced with, please authenticate my existence. And Brooker suggests we just take out the words altogether. I mean, why use words when you could actually just use beeps, he said. So the interaction goes like this. I'm communicating to you, and I go, beep, which when translated means, please authenticate my existence. And you come back to me, and you go, bip, bip, and that means existence authenticated, please authenticate mine. And then I come back to you, and I go, beep. And that translates into existence authenticate, and then the discourse can end. That's all we need to do. Beep, bip, bip, beep. And we've, we've done all the curation we need. Back in the 16th century, the great French philosopher Descartes said that the core of human existence is being in, in being a thinking self. His famous, I think, therefore I am. As the identity and security of the modern self has become increasingly fragile, we've moved to something quite different, and it's this. I am perceived by others in my curations, therefore I am. I am perceived, therefore I am. And the point is this, that the self at the center of everything has to be perceived. We demand to be perceived, and that's the purpose of the glass house. Now, this has two consequences, this self-referential living. The first is a new ethical imperative, which is this. With the self at the center, I must be true to myself. 
The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls this the ethics of authenticity. If you're at the center, you're creating yourself, you have to be true to yourself. That's the main thing. You have to emerge fully into who you really are. So being true to yourself is reflected now in the right of self-expression. Highest thing we aim for, to express our true self. And there's extreme examples of this. Recently in the UK, a cyclist was cut off by a driver. He got off his bike, kicked in the door. And when the police came and he was interviewed, he expressed what he'd done as being true to himself. I expressed my anger. And that's okay. I just had to be authentic to what I was really feeling. The second thing under the self-referential affair is this, that we have a whole new measure for reality. And I call this intensity over profundity. And this again is the consequence of a self-referential engagement with reality. Here we are, we feel empty in terms of who we are, we feel like a ghost, and the question is, how can the ghost be made to feel real? Well, the best solution is the intensity of your experience at any given moment. So the business of life is to make yourself feel alive. And the more intense your experience, the more real you feel yourself to be. It's actually how many believers measure their spiritual reality. Their relationship with God comes down to the intensity of the experience. When the intensity of our faith is not high in terms of what we experience, it just seems to dissipate and go away. Now what this means is that our meaning is reduced to a bodily sensation. And that's what I mean by intensity over profundity. And it's a pretty terrible revenge to take on meaning. So for, for the modern self, the real is measured by the rush, by the experience, the intense sensation. So you jump off the crane, you go faster, you find techniques for higher level of sexual pleasure. Some years ago, the American writer, you're a great American writer, Walker Percy, he described the male, the modern male, in a rather colorful way, but it works. He said the male, the modern male, is a ghost with an erection, just trying to make himself alive. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that, looking for the next sexual encounter to give the experience of being alive and real. And I believe this is one of the reasons why we as moderns are so easily bored. When intense experience is absent, we become restless. We become irritated with the present. T.S. Eliot described this in his great poem, The Four Quartets. Moderns are distracted from distraction by distraction. Distracted beings looking for the next experience. So this is the rather bleak place that I think generally we moderns function in. The humanist age has brought us to this point. And it's interesting, at the beginning of the humanist age, there was all kinds of utopian novels that came out. The novels of the day are increasingly dystopian because this is the world we live in. Now the question is, how can this be subverted? And one of the points I would make is that the age of self is actually subverting itself. Because it's unsustainable for the self to be the sun at the center of everything. So I believe our ego-pagan era is beginning to unravel. 
And we could ask, how much longer does it have? And we have to say, only the Lord knows the answer to that question in terms of when it really comes apart. But what the Bible does reveal is that one day Christ will come and totally subvert the age of self. And that's because Christ alone is the center of reality, the center of creation, like the sun at the center of our solar system. He alone provides the gravitational pull to hold everything in place and to give it its harmony. And He alone is the point of integration that makes sense of the human self in terms of an identity. And that's why I close with these words, these well-known words from Colossians 1 verse 15. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. He's the center. The reference is to Christ, not to us. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together the harmony of the universe. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that at the center of created reality, we find the reality of you, our Lord, our Creator, our Savior and Redeemer, and the hope of this world. And as we live in the twilight of the humanist age, as we see this era beginning to unravel in terms of the carnage that it pours out on, on human persons, we thank you that as believers you have revealed yourself to be the center we thank you that one day you will return and that center will be seen by all people. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful in how we live out, not living self-referentially, but living with you as our center, finding the secure identity that we were made for in you alone. So Lord, help us to overcome the worldliness of the self-centered age and help us to reach out to you our Lord and our God. And we thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.